Folks, financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year, and then the inflation data came out higher than expected again, just like we've been predicting. Friends, this isn't going away anytime soon. It can't. The U.S. is $34 plus trillion in the hole, and yet we keep printing money, which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher, whether it's at the grocery cart or at the gas store. So, You can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation and Birch Gold makes it easy to own. They will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. All you got to do to get started, text Just News to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Then talk to a precious metal specialist on how to protect your savings from persistent inflation. The way to do it with gold. All you got to do to get started on that journey with my good friends who I trust more than anyone at Birch Gold Group, text Just News to 989898 right now. Hello, America, and happy Thursday. An exciting day of news ahead of us on this show. First, we're going to take a little bit of time exploring some of the (laughs) moments in the American media's performance lately. And we know about all the stories that have gone in reversal. COVID-19, the lab, the lab leak, Donald Trump, Russia collusion, Ukraine impeachment, Hunter Biden and the laptop. But this week in the coverage of the Nashville shooting tragedy, the school shooting tragedy, more gymnastic backflips, more moments of uncertainty, and quite frankly, lack of public service that occurred in a lot of the media coverage around that. Uh, what was a difficult tragedy? Uh, it was difficult for some of the media to acknowledge the great job and the heroism of those uh, officers. And there was a, a great moment of consternation and confusion and sometimes inaccurate reporting based on the sex and gender identification of the shooter, who was a biological female that recently began identifying as a male. We're going to have a great conversation with someone that I think is one of the most astute analysts of the media today. He wrote, I think, the iconic book on the New York Times, The Old Great Lady, as we call it in the profession. Ashley Rinsberg is going to join us. Of course, he wrote the book, The Gray Lady Winked, that went through a long history of the New York Times failures. There's a cultural consistency the New York Times of often getting major stories wrong, despite having such a important perch in the administration of news and information. And we're going to ask Ashley about all the things that happened this week. A recent column by the former Washington Post editor, my former boss, by the way, Len Downey, suggesting that we should throw objectivity out the window and journalists should become moral clarity authoritarians. I'm not sure that's a good idea. How about sticking to facts? How about being a neutral voice? Forget about moral authority. But I want to ask Ashley about that as well. Many other things that we've seen this week, the IRS chilling visit to Matt Taibbi's home. And of course, today, this morning, the capture of a Wall Street Journal reporter, the arrest of a Wall Street Journal reporter just doing his job in Russia. The Russian authorities accusing him of being a spy now in this silly tick for tat game that is going on between America and Russia right now. We're going to have all that in the first block of the show. Really excited about that. And then in the second block, we're going to get you up to speed. There are about a dozen major Second Amendment develops that have happened in the last two weeks. Legislatures, court rulings, in some cases, states are taking away gun rights and other ones are reaffirming them and the courts are refereeing between both. Well, we've got a great guest for the second half of the show, Luis Valdez, national spokesman for Gun Owners America. He's going to bring us up to speed on that very important 
round of developments. I mean, from Washington State to Florida, from Texas to Connecticut, major, major developments in the Second Amendment that really affect the future of American gun rights state by state and nationally. Of course, the president himself back on the assault weapons ban kick. That's not going to happen. There's no political will. So just saying it over and over again won't make it happen. But it's a big debate in Washington these days, and we need to make sure that we have it covered for you. And Louise is going to bring us up to speed. So we got two great guests to come right out of the shoot with. I'm really excited about that. And then we've got a couple of scoops that I want to make sure you've had a chance to look. Please watch my extended interview with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. It's up. We ran the whole thing yesterday. A lot of big thought about clean energy policy in America. Just a few minutes ago, the U.S. House passed its signature law, H.R. 1, the first legislation introduced in January. House Republicans passed their Make Energy Affordable Act, and it lays out a different path to lower carbon emissions, cheaper energy, more ubiquity of energy, and better national security from an energy policy perspective. It is the alternative to the Green New Deal. And its passage today sets in motion a really clear debate for voters going into the 2024. It's very important that we have that debate and that Republicans have a credible alternative. And you hear Kevin McCarthy speak about this in the interview, why you got to be able to talk about carbon emissions. Young voters care about it, but we don't have to kill the economy doing it. And we don't have to double down on only solar and wind and electric vehicles, because by the way, the grid and the technologies aren't there yet. Natural gas plus nuclear can get us there. A very important conversation. We're very lucky that ClearPath helped us put that special on the other day. They're a great clean energy company here in Washington. And we're really, we're really grateful that they helped us host a really thoughtful conversation with some really big names. We have the Dapital National Security Advisor, Victoria Coates, obviously Speaker McCarthy, Congressman Garrett Graves, who's probably the top most influential clean energy advisor in the House or lawmaker that is in a position of influence on that. So those are some pretty significant moments to realize. This is a historic vote today. And for the first time, for the first time, it gives young voters who've been fed just the Green New Deal climate change storyline of Al Gore and George Soros and John Podesta, a, a credible alternative to look at. That's not the same plan, but it tries to get to some of the same targets with the same value. And I think that that's a very important development in Washington, D.C., and quite frankly, in America writ large. And I think we'll be talking a lot more about that over the next few days and few months. It's not going to go anywhere in the Senate, though I think it's possible that the Senate will take up at least the permitting reform part of this because Democrats promised Joe Manchin this last year they they failed to deliver for him. Republicans are going to probably deliver, and I think that'll be a big moment. And also, Democrats, including John Podesta in the White House, one of the more liberal members of the Biden administration, he has said that the permitting process is slowing down even Joe Biden's own clean energy plans. I think there could be some bipartisan consensus on that. That's a topic we cover in the discussion today. Now, before we get to Ashley Rinsberg, one of my favorite guests, and of course, a great discussion in the second half on the Second Amendment, a great investigative story. It's going to come out tomorrow. We're really excited about it. My good colleague, Nick Jeevis, is going to be the author on this. But I just want to walk through something that is absolutely extraordinary. The General Service Administration, basically the procurement manager of the United States government, it has been criticized, its own internal watchdog, the Inspector General, 
found that a group of woke employees inside the GSA, liberal ideological workers who were supposed to create login.gov, a universal secure login for government employees and Americans to access government information. They refused to implement required facial recognition features, particularly for certain high security accounts, you know, government officials with important security credentials, because they believed facial recognition, their personal belief was that facial recognition was somehow racist. And then they falsely certified. They lied to the federal government by saying that they did that. They were compliant, that they had put facial recognition when they hadn't. It put, according to the GSA IG, a million accounts at risk. And it's really a remarkable story about how far left some of these young new workers are, whether they're coming into the news media, the United States government, the court system, the prosecutors, they are beginning to impose their ideology abandon the neutrality of the United States government and take actions that not only are biased, in this case, they compromised American security. We're going to have a more complete story on this tomorrow. General Services Administration, IG, the Technology Transformation Service, login.gov. It is a remarkable story of wokeism corrupting the security of the United States. And that's not me saying this. That is the chief watchdog of the General Services Administration, the procurement office of the United States government, Marxism, transgenderism, CRT, all combining among a group of ideologues to risk American security. Think about that. All right. With that note, ponder that a few more seconds. We're going to go to a quick commercial break. When we come back, Ashley Rinsberg, the author of The Gray Lady Winked, one of the best media critics in the world. He'll be with us in just a few minutes. Hey folks, it's John Solomon here. Today, I want to shine a light on AMAC, an organization who's dedicated to America's seniors, but is vital for conservatives of all ages. AMAC stands out by not only advocating for senior issues, but also by pushing for conservative values that affect us all. By joining, you're not just supporting our senior citizens, you're part of a movement defending the freedoms that made this country great and to ensure that we secure our nation's future. Plus, membership brings you exclusive benefits like discounts on travel, dining, and entertainment, and of course, special insurance rates, one of the things I like. Regardless of your age, if you're driven to preserve freedom, AMAC welcomes you. This is about uniting youthful vigor with the wisdom of experience and our quest to keep this country great. Sign up now for amac.us slash justnews. And for a limited time, you get a free gift membership for someone else who shares your love for our great nation. Don't miss out on this chance to make a difference from AMAC. Join today at amac.us slash justnews. That's amac.us slash justnews and extend the invitation to a friend or family member for free. What a great opportunity. Folks, financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year, and then the inflation data came out higher than expected again, just like we've been predicting. Friends, this isn't going away anytime soon. It can't. The U.S. is $34 plus trillion in the hole, and yet we keep printing money, which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher, whether it's at the grocery cart or at the gas store. So, 
you can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation and Birch Gold makes it easy to own. They will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. All you got to do to get started, text Just News to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Then talk to a precious metal specialist on how to protect your savings from persistent inflation. The way to do it with gold. All you got to do to get started on that journey with my good friends who I trust more than anyone at Birch Gold Group, text Just News to 989898 right now. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. You know that one of my favorite books of the last couple of years is The Gray Lady Wink, a story about just how far-fetched the New York Times has been, not just in recent years, but historically. A lot of its sins have been glossed over over the years, but not after our next guest did some great reporting. Ashley Rinsberg wrote that book and really helped us to understand the very long, difficult history of accuracy and extremism that has kind of permeated through the gray lady, the New York Times. It's not unique to this moment that so many people criticize the Times today for. And we're lucky enough to be joined by him again today. Ashley, great to have you back on the show. Thank you, John. Great to be here, as always. We had a really fun moment this week in America watching the media struggle to cover a very difficult school shooting. It's really a tragic moment, an insecure private school, a troubled woman seeking help for emotional disorders, shoots up a school, kills three children, three adults. And there are two moments that the media seem to really struggle with. I think they accentuate some of the challenges of the modern day media. One, it's hard for them to acknowledge that the cops did a really good job here because they often are demonizing the cops and the two hero cops that go through their move with speed and save lives. And the second part is they don't know how to deal with the gender euphoria that this particular shooter suffered from. Give us your handicap of how the media covered it and what flaws or difficulties you saw in real time with the U.S. media covering it. I think we have this this narrative in the media about the shooters that has tried to pin it on, um, you know, what men, young young men who are white men who are dealing with rage and anger issues. And in this case, the, you create this kind of, as you're kind of pointing to, this dissonance. Is Was this a young white man who fits that pattern, that archetype the media has created for its narrative? Or was this the transgender woman that we are all supposed to, um, so, you know, believe and, and sort of affirm in these instances. So you create this real divide between two different narratives that have clashed with each other on in this tragic case. So I think there was one thing there. And I also think exactly as you pointed out, the police situation, it is clear we need police in our societies to function. We need them to protect those who are vulnerable. And the police have been demonized to no extent um, for the last two, three years, since since 2020 at least. So another case where the media is just really at odds with itself, very conflicted, doesn't quite know which way to turn. Yeah, that's a great way. Conflicted is a great word because that's what it felt like when we were watching in real time. I was watching the networks and even some of the New York Times, the Associated Press really struggled. At moments, they were in violation of their own style guides. They, very early on, they called the shooter a woman, used the she pronoun, even though they had imposed these new pronoun rules a few months earlier. And it seems to me that sometimes just covering the story 
is more important than trying to figure out the political correctness, social moray rules that they're trying to sort through. It became obvious in this case, it hindered the coverage of the story for a while until they could realize, hey, something, you know, it took them really 48 hours to fully appreciate the nature of the tragedy that had occurred. There has been another, on the same topic, a pretty significant uprising in the New York Times, a great lady that you wrote your great book about, over some reporters and their activism on the transgender issue. Seems like the news have really slapped them down in the last 10 days. Give us a little handicap of what you're seeing in the New York Times rebellion and how the new executive editor of the Washington Times, Joe Kahn, has handled it. The newsroom at the New York Times has become really famously activistic over the last few years, really pronounced during uh, the BLM uh, riots of 2020, where you just had the newsroom getting up and walking out. And it wasn't just the newsroom. It was it was business staff as well. We have two, three hundred staffers. And of course, you also have these um, these efforts to unionize within the Times, unionizing a tech guild at the New York Times that's also created a lot of dissent. So there is a lot of turmoil at the New York Times. And previous management under the leadership of Dean Baquet would sort of cave and have a town hall and they would get together, they would talk about it. They would, you know, in some cases, they actually fired senior editors to quell these these uprisings, these mutinies. And in this case, with the transgender stuff, that you have a, a, a contingent, a cohort of New York Times staffers who feel that the New York Times has been treating the transgender effort uh, or, or movement unfairly and being anti-trans in their words, which it's sort of hard to imagine how the New York Times has been that of all things. But that's the accusation. And a few other um, and sort of activist NGOs like, like GLAD joined into the fight. But... In this case, we've really seen a, a distinct approach taken by Joseph Kahn, the new executive editor, who's saying, no, thank you. <laughs> you guys work for this organization. It is a very top-down organization, historically, traditionally. And that's why this kind of marked this. Yes, you, you really had a lot of control from the top of the New York Times, including not just from the editor, but from the publisher, the chairman of the New York Times companies, the the uh, scion of the family that owns and controls the paper. But so I think they're getting the troops back in line there. I think they're starting to understand that they cannot run a business. They cannot run a newspaper that way. So Joe Kahn is kind of cracking the whip and uh, seems to be doing it, at least on this issue, successfully, despite the sensitivities around it. So I think, you know, that's probably a good thing for the organization. Yeah. Yeah. There's no doubt that sometimes just getting back to common sense solutions and not catering to political whims or political movements. We're supposed to be neutral in a newsroom and we should leave our politics at the threshold when we cross in each day. And it seems as though after maybe a six or eight or 10 year period of appeasement that Joe Khan's getting back to the sort of newsroom that were more traditional in the 80s and 90s, which is you want to have your opinions, keep them out of the newsroom. And it's going to be interesting to see if he can hold that line and what sort of reporter leaves or comes into the New York Times because they like what he's doing or don't like what he's doing. I suspect over time, there'll be some departures and some new people coming in to reinforce the style of journalism that Joe Kahn has. And I, I'm a fan of Joe Kahn historically. He's done some very good journalism in his career. And uh, it's going to be interesting to see if he can restore command and control to the newsroom and get it out of its silly political activism. 
While that's going on, the larger story of the unraveling of major media narratives, narratives that the news media, more than anyone, drove, maybe sometimes even more. I've looked back now, and sometimes where Dr. Fauci was wasn't nearly as far out as some of the mainstream media was when it came to COVID-19, Hunter Biden. Do you see the news media beginning to appreciate that some of the narratives they struck out on and imposed often with emotion rather than fact, that as they unravel, that there is a an obligation, a need to begin to take account to how they got these things wrong. Because obviously, you know, you could take the the narrative of the Wuhan lab and whether it's a lab leak, or you could take about masks work when they didn't, vaccines work when they didn't quite work. Uh, there are vaccine injuries now, we're being told. Do you think there is a moment of retrospect in some of the industry for how far off the course they were during pandemic coverage? I think if there is, it's it's being kept really quiet. Um, there is some murmurings. You know, the New York Times has done this this recent piece, is an op-ed uh, or an opinion piece, rather opinion column by Megan Stack about the about lab leak and how Fauci really tried to cover it up and, and did so successfully. What they left out of that piece was the New York Times' own role in the cover-up of lab leak, calling it a conspiracy theory, calling it a fringe theory calling it racist. There was no mention of that in her piece, even though this piece has kind of made the rounds. Um, and I would say the same thing is probably the same with, with Russiagate. I, I've spoken with some people who, who've, who had some interesting reactions to Jeff Gerth's piece in Columbia Journalism Review from, uh, from Jan- January, where he really took the media to task. And this is a New York Times investigative reporter. And a Pulitzer winner. Yeah, I mean, one of the best. A Pulitzer, exactly. A Pulitzer winner, a very serious journalist. And, you know, there's not been any public media reaction. I do think there's probably some back channel where people are coming and talking to each other behind the scenes saying, wow, we got this wrong and this is a big problem. But the I think what's really indicative here is that they're not saying this publicly. There's nobody having this conversation about any of these topics, including Hunter Biden's laptop. You're seeing it just at the margins at most, but it is really right now about hunkering down and keeping those narratives intact, which is kind of scary. It is because it doesn't allow for the problems that led to these errors and this erroneous reporting to truly be fixed. The first part of any fix is recognition of where things went wrong. And in an earlier generation, that self-introspection, that constant reevaluation of our how close we were to truth and not truth. It was often, I remember I was a deputy bureau chief inside AP's Washington Bureau when a young reporter in that bureau had manufactured some quotes. I'm the one that actually discovered it. Like they were naming experts who didn't exist. And so we had to, you know, one, very quickly get in front of that. We self-disclosed it. No one had discovered it. We discovered internally. We announced it. But then we, you know, and, and the announcing was the first part of cleansing, which is, hey, despite our good values in this newsroom, somebody cheated. And here's how they cheated. And here's every story they cheated on. Here's how we reviewed it. That's the first process. And then you set up a set of rules. How are we going to make sure that even despite all the good rules we had in the place, we're not going to make this happen again? And we did that in the second phase. There's none of that two-step process in any of the the major false narratives that the media have really driven since the beginning of the Trump era. I don't see it as pronounced before the Trump era. Is the Trump era like really the journalism gone wild moment? You know, I actually I, it is, I think, though, I also think it does. Co- it does coincide with a an earlier movement towards 
um, using the concept of disinformation to to kind of lock down what is permissible to say and what is not permissible to say. Jacob Siegel in Tablet Magazine had this fantastic piece out this week just about the disinformation complex that has sprung up. He traces it back to about 2014, where you really get the government um, building this infrastructure to to control speech, to control what's considered acceptable, and getting the media in line. So I think it probably traces, I mean, of course, that coincides with with Trump emergence onto the field. So, and it gave them a great reason to go all in, as, as did the pandemic, as did the BLM stuff. So it's really been a perfect storm of issues of political forces and of this deeper, um, really a deep state effort to to create a, a disinformation infrastructure and tie it to the national security state. There, and there's growing evidence that some of the tactics that were used to create false realities, because that's Russia collusion was really the creation of a false reality. It felt real to everybody, but it wasn't true at all. That some of those tactics that were used are the tactics that our intelligence community used in earlier generations to create instability or psyops operations against our enemies or in foreign countries. And so now there's, you know, I think there's some evidence that some of those disinformation tactics are now been turned on to the American people and the media becomes the willing partner when they get duped or willingly join in on the disinformation. I worked for Len Downey. And by the way, I've worked at the Washington Post. I was their lead national investigative reporter. I get to work with Woodward and Downey. And I considered my time with Len Downey a great honor. I saw a newsman that was serious, factual, no nonsense, no opinion, just wanted the truth and pushed you harder to get the truth. But I was stunned back in January when he wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post from his current position as a professor at the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism at the Arizona State University, where he said that journalism needs to move beyond objectivity, which in most our words, I'm not a big fan of the word objectivity, but I know what it meant in journalism, which is it was your job to be neutral, not to pick sides, right? He kind of came up with this new scheme. I'm not sure I even quite understand, but it didn't feel like a standard that journalism has used. Did you have a chance to evaluate what Len wrote? I'm curious your take on what he is he's talking about. It seems to play into white male culture was what was wrong with news media. He made that argument. But what did you think of it? Um, you know, I didn't re- I didn't have a chance to see exactly that that piece, but I've seen the effects of it in the broader media. I mean, we had the the New York Times coming out in whenever that was 2018 something like that, talking about how we need to replace objectivity with something called moral clarity. So the journalist's job was not to go out and bring the public the facts and present them in a dispassionate, neutral manner. It was to pick a side in the moral wars and the political wars that we're seeing and go after it, prosecute your, your thesis, advocate and that's exactly what we've seen happen. And, you know, so the, of course, there was a racial component to this. And of course, it was all about Trump. Um, they really came out with this stuff in response to Trump, because to say we couldn't report just the plain facts. And there was one headline, I remember, where the Times kind of reflected some 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 comments they considered to be positive by Trump on gun control or something like that. And people just went bananas. They went nuts. There was outraged because the the headline seemed to reflect something positive about Trump. And that was not allowed. That could not happen. 
So that was where they made this very explicit choice to abandon the traditional values of journalism and take up a whole new mantle. And and we're, we're watching, we're seeing how that has played out over the last five years or so. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break, and we'll have more with Ashley Rinsberg right after these messages. Folks, if you owe back taxes, fair warning, you're not going to like this. The IRS is mailing millions of pay-up letters. Millions, I say. Then it's up to the 20,000 new IRS enforcement agents to find you. Why the IRS targets you and not millionaires? Well, because millionaires have tax lawyers. You don't. You'll pay up. Plus interest and penalties. You need Tax Network USA, and you need them now. Tax Network USA has brilliant war room strategies to solve your IRS problems quickly and in your favor. Like a preferred direct line to the IRS, they know which agents to deal with and who to avoid. It's not all bad news for you because Tax Network USA learned of a special limited time IRS offer. They're willing to waive $1 billion in penalties if you qualify. So schedule your free confidential consultation to see if you qualify for this limited time IRS penalty canceling offer. To do so, call 1-800-245-6000. That's 1-800-245-6000. Or visit tnusa.com slash justnews. That's tnusa.com slash justnews. Folks, Field of Greens is the healthiest thing I do every day, and I want you on this journey with me. Why? It's literally one scoop a day. It tastes great. I love the fruit flavors particularly, and it's completely improved my life and my health. This is nutrition the way nature intended. When I began taking a hard look at why I wasn't feeling good and why I felt unhealthy, why I was gaining weight, why I was losing energy, it wasn't just because I had hit my 50s. No, it was because I wasn't getting the right amount of fruit and vegetables in my diet. And listen, I'm just too busy to go to the store, clean up the vegetables, cook uh, uh, vegetable dinners, and make sure I hit the fruit. A field of greens stepped in. One scoop of powder in my drink or on my eggs in the morning and boom, I was off and feeling better. And suddenly I was losing weight. I was sleeping better. My metabolism went up. My blood sugar went down. My cholesterol went down and my weight went down. And my doctor said, hey, whatever you're doing, keep it doing. You know what that is? It's Field of Greens. That's what I've been doing. Field of Greens is radically different. Each organic fruit and vegetable was medically chosen to support heart and vital organ health. I trust Field of Greens to keep me healthy. I promise you, you're going to love this product. But if for any reason you don't, they'll give you 100% money back guarantee. Now, you're going to get 15% off your first order plus free rush shipping because of the incredible partnership we have here at Just the News with Brick. House Nutrition, and, of course, Field of Greens. All you got to do to take advantage of this offer, visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS. That's promo code JUSTNEWS at fieldofgreens.com. Don't wait. Go to fieldofgreens.com today. Use the promo code JUSTNEWS for 15% off. All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. Let's continue our incredible conversation with Ashley Rinsberg. I think you just did a really great analysis of what I think I've been experiencing and watching and chronicling and what really motivated me to start Just the News. We did move from this idea that you put a bunch of facts together and you get comment from both sides and then you let the reader decide to, we're going to frame the story to what our moral objective, our moral superiority is. And what's so scary about that is that that's literally, I think, how a lot of the reporters drove the narratives on everything from vaccines or COVID-19 policies to Donald Trump and all the false stories we go about Donald Trump and 
Also, I think the effort to hide the Hunter Biden laptop. We had an email last week that we uncovered in a FOIA, and it goes back to 2015. And there's a Bloomberg reporter quoted in one of the emails with the White House saying, I won't write a negative story about Hunter Biden unless my editors put a gun to my head. Now, in fairness, she ended up writing the story. But it got me the idea that, wait a second, this moral clarity really is a question of what's my personal opinion. And I'm going to impose it on people. If the new Len Downey standard becomes the standard that newsrooms use, what's going to be the likely marketplace reaction to that? I mean, I think we're seeing it right now. I think we're seeing it with uh, all time low trust in media, where media media is now trusted less than Congress by the American public. I mean, that's a that's sort of an epochal shift. It used, used to be you had quite high trust in media and very low trust in Congress and trust in Congress is still low. But media is even lower because people are not stupid. They can feel it. They know when you're you know, the, this is something that um, the great media theorist Marshall McLuhan wrote about, which is that media is the massage, meaning it works you over what it tells you. It transforms your reality, it transforms your life. But people feel it. You can't you can't hide it. That's the thing is that journalists want to hide behind this sort of veil of neutrality as if they're just they're just a, a clear lens that lets you look at the outside world. But that's not true. It's a warped lens. It's a lens that's been distorted. And I think the even bigger than personal opinion is that there's a corporate agenda. I mean, we're at this point today where the mainstream media, 90 percent of media, news media is controlled by six companies, six companies. So there there's a huge corporate agenda because these are these are conglomerates. These are big businesses. They have shareholders. They have a legal fiduciary responsibility to maximize their profit. That is their number one job. And if the if that in the minds of their bosses in the newsroom means drive clicks at all costs, that's what they will do. So when you are saying we're going to we're going to take sides and we're going to do what's best for what we think, you're also saying we're going to do what's best for what our bosses in these corporations think. And again, you're just you're dropping all these safeguards and you're dropping all the barriers that we've erected over the last two, three hundred years of press in the United States to keep it honest in one fell swoop. It's quite scary. It is. It is scary. And I think you're right. And I hear this a lot from people when they go out into the community and you, you get a day to actually get out of the bubble in Washington and go meet people. And people really feel like the last 10 years, the news media is trying to lead them by the nose and shape their opinion instead of just give them the facts and let them make up their own mind. And I can't tell you the number of times I hear from someone, just let me make up my own mind. Let me make up my own mind. Just give me the facts and let me make up my own mind. And it seems like they have diagnosed what's wrong with media quicker than maybe some of the media executives have in this now highly concentrated industry. I want to ask you if you see any solutions out there that are emerging to create this. I've always believed that when you have a moment like this in an industry, the competition ultimately becomes the perfect solution, right? If you don't like what's going on, create something that does it better. Do you see, with all of the exciting experiments that are going on with all the independent journalists, traditional journalists now going independent like Matt Taibbi and others, Schellenberg and others, do you see some signs that make you optimistic that there are some counterbalances, countervailing forces that might self-correct the industry? Um, I think uh, there definitely are some countervailing forces. I don't know if they're going to correct the industry. I think they're just going to create a separate industry, like a an alternate 
you know, parallel media universe where you can say, you know what, I'm opting out and I'm going to go out and find um, these other suppliers of news. And I'm not sure how much of an impact that's going to have. It, it might actually further entrench the the big players, the New York Times and, and wherever else, CNN. Um, there might be some moderating effect. I mean, we've seen some changes at CNN. Maybe we'll see some changes at the New York Times. But I think at the end of the day, especially with with print media, meaning like like newspapers, even if they're digital, they're relying on subscribers, which means they're relying on 3% of their total readership. And they got to serve that readership. They got to serve that subscriber base, just like a politician is to serve his political base. So I think what we will see, though, is that people will be able to say, you know what, Taibbi's got some good stuff. Barry Weiss has got some good stuff. Um, Schellenberger's got some good stuff. And all these other outlets and news organizations that are that are full-fledged news organizations, just like yours, where you can say, I think I'll just go over here. It's a lot easier. I don't have to deal with all this pressure that, is, that I'm getting from my news source. I'm the customer, and they're telling me what to think and how to be and what to say. I don't quite like that. I think I'll try something different. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that the market force that a lot of people are adapting. And I'm going to shout out, you know, there are some news organizations that I see in the last six months making some effort to self-correct. CNN, I think you mentioned it. I see a little bit of effort there to really balance off. They still have some of their more opinionated reporters that still try the sham, but they got rid of some people that I thought really corrupted the brand and the people that are practicing their take. And CBS News is another one that I've been watching lately, and you just see them. In fact, I think CBS News broke the Joe Biden classified documents, which was a legitimate big scoop, and it was you know an accountability scoop against the current president. There are some mainstream media that are beginning to make adjustments, maybe because of market share loss or just new people came in and said, we're going to go back to the old way of doing journalism. But maybe the combination of some people self-correcting and some new ventures will corner people, isolate those who are in the nose ring business to, you know, maybe they'll double down, but they'll probably become more isolated if we can turn them into islands. Is that possible? Do you think in the modern media marketplace that over time, those who have decided to just trade truth for opinion will get isolated more in the marketplace? You know, that's a great question. I think some of them will. I think they're going to be increasingly few of them. I mean, we just saw NPR lay off 100 people. Um, it, it's a hard business to sustain, especially right now. I think it was probably a little bit easier during the Trump years where you had these huge boosts in ratings and readership, and there was a lot more money around, a lot more investment around. And now we're going to this period of, of austerity in the broader economy and also in the media itself where uh, I think you're, you're really going to, if you're not really serving a broad audience very well, you're going to struggle. I think there might be some players that remain, like the New York Times is, might be the most solid among them. But I think for the others, they, they might, that might be the one force where they're going after a broader base of customers and trying not to anger people <laughs> so quite so much. I mean, that's generally good business practice. Don't piss off your customers. Um, I think that's something the media might relearn, rediscover in the next few years. Amber Athey has a new book out, Snowflakes, I think is the headline, but it kind of shows how a young generation of activist journalists came out of college and actually forced changes in the newsroom from people who are much more experienced and probably better suited to resist those changes, but they didn't. Just the basic top line of her theory, really activist young journalists have really had a profound effect in, take, in turning around some of these newsrooms, haven't they? 
Definitely they had. That's a great title. I got, I'll, I'll send her a message. Um, I've been on her podcast one. Great title. And I think that's a great thesis. Um, you, you know, I, when we look at this stuff, we always tend to forget that the academy, academia is upstream of everything. That these journalists are coming out of elite colleges and universities, and they're they're that's where they get it straight from the mother's milk, um, and then they're putting it into their reporting because that's what they're being taught. And we're seeing that it's not only in, in media. What we saw with Stanford University uh, in the last couple of weeks, where you know students erupting into outrage because a, a judge who's unfavorable to their their positions dared to speak to them. And this is something that we're going to have to address as well, which is not just about media. It's, it is much more than that. It's much deeper than that. It's about the values that are being taught in these schools that are the sources for, for the, the elite, for the people who lead the institutions of this country. So I think that's another thing to think about. And I think that's a great point that, that Amber's made. Yeah, Amber, she does such good work and it was able to kind of take a 30,000 foot drone fly over the industry and you kind of get some big picture thoughts from her and reading that book. Really well done. We were lucky to have her on earlier in the week and to have you on today. Last thought, because this is one of those moments. I'm a journalist that experienced this firsthand back in 2001, just before 9-11. The FBI took my phone records in an effort to intimidate or chill some of my reporting and they took my they seized my mail afterwards, both cases, without a warrant. Uh, they ultimately had to admit that they had violated my civil liberties. They were just simply trying to find my sources and keep information from flowing to me. But this week, you see Matt Taibbi goes before Congress to help Congress understand what it was he saw in the Twitter files. What is the censorship issue? In the very moment he's sitting before the committee, an IRS agent is showing up at his home, dropping off a note that they may be looking at him for some IRS investigation, some claim of false identity theft or something, or identity theft. Your top line takeaway from just the sequence of literally the moment he's in, in this, and everybody knew he's testifying for days, the IRS agent showing up at that moment at his home. Any, any thought about what message that might have sent to journalists? Uh, yeah, I think that was that was a pretty clear message to others to, to keep out, stay away. Don't go down that path where Taibi is. You might end up with someone knocking on your door. And this is not at this point where we've seen so much intervention by federal government into the lives of journalists, researchers, um, social media companies, where suddenly a federal agent of some sort shows up or alerts you that, that you're now a target of some sort of inquiry for whatever reason, that is chilling. This is America, or it feel, feels like we should say it was America, because that was you know, the kind of thing that was unimaginable not very long ago. And I'd also say that not very long ago, the media would have been up in arms. That's right. It Howling with outrage, not even just if it happened to one of them, it, but specifically to Matt Taibbi, who was once considered a great liberal journalist and now is considered the, this conservative devil because he dared to question. Pariah. He's a pariah. He's a pariah. And that's why they watched it and they probably thought to themselves he got what he deserved. But the reality is that that level of brazenness is designed to send a message. It's not designed to be discreet. It's designed to tell the rest of us, be careful. 
And we have another fresh example today, this time in a true autocratic society, Russia obviously arresting a well-known and respected Wall Street Journal reporter. I never would have lived today say, well, there's not much difference between that, what happened in America, but there's actually maybe not today. The Wall Street Journal thing should be condemned as well. Russia doing it to a Wall Street Journal reporter clearly in the tit for tat. But the similarities between Russia's treatment of its media and what happened to Matt Taibbi are a little more closer than I ever thought we would get in this society. I assume that that poor reporter's got a long haul ahead of him, doesn't he? Yeah, that's that's terrible news. I mean, anytime that kind of thing happens to a journalist uh, around the world, especially in a country like Russia or countries like Iran or Venezuela or Cuba, wherever it does happen, it is never a good outcome. Um, so I, I hope, I pray that, that that man, that journalist is this becomes just an administrative blip and they sort it out quickly because the quick, the faster that they can get him out of there, the better his chances are that this just, you know, blows over. The longer it goes on, this, the, the greater the chances of this becoming something terrible. Uh, Evan Gerskovich, a good, very good reporter, done some good work for Wall Street Journal. I, we went through, I went through this a decade ago in 2009. Our reporter at the Washington Times was captured by Iranian authorities. We negotiated, we got him out quickly, but it is a scary thing for the news organization and it's really scary for the reporter. And so our best well wishes to Evan are, are there today. Ashley, it is always an honor. On I refer to your book often. Sometimes when I'm just trying to find some inspiration to go back and talk to my own, I'll, I'll pick up the book for a second and kind of thumb through it because there is a lot of wisdom in what we want to be and what we don't want to be in journalism all through that book. It is a true masterpiece and I want to thank you for your time today. We're going to get you back on often and keep an eye on our great profession. It's in one of its most turbulent times in history for sure. Thank you so much, John. I appreciate that. And um, I 100% agree. This is, this is the moment we all need to pay attention, speak up, speak out, and, and don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Exactly. That is the best advice. Yeah. The temptation could be to do that. We can't do that. You, um, of course, have been such a, a great wise voice on this. And your time today and your contribution with your book are really, truly treasured. So thanks a lot. We'll have you back on real soon, Ashley. Thank you, John. All right, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break. When we come back, Louise Valdez from the Gun Owners of America is going to join us. I'm really excited about that because there are about a dozen, two dozen extraordinary developments in the Second Amendment arena, courts, legislatures, local governments taking action, Joe Biden getting into it. And we want to bring you up to speed. Louise Valdez from Gun Owners of America will get us up to speed on all of those developments right after this commercial break. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. 
All right, folks, welcome back from the commercial break. We've been talking so much about what went on in Nashville, the tragedy there on Monday. We continue to learn more about the offender. And we also got to see yesterday in great detail the heroism of those officers who went in record speed to go clear that school and save more lives. And that they did. Those video footage on the site have just gotten so many views from our readers. And we're so grateful that people can witness the extraordinary heroism that our law enforcement does. But our next guest, well, he worked in law enforcement for a long time. Today, he's the national spokesman and the Florida State Director for Gun Overdose of America. He is Luis Valdez. And he joins us right now, Louise, great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me on the air, brother, and thanks for being a shining beacon of liberty in these dark and troubling times. <laughs> we need a few more lights, don't we? Got to light a few more candles, I think. And uh, you do that every day at Gun Owners of America. And I want to just start with some of the facts involving Nashville, and, and I want to remind people because you told me this off air. This is really, you actually worked as a school resource officer, right? Yes, yes. Part of my law enforcement career was being an SRO and. I took that job very seriously. I was entrusted with our most precious, precious of resources, our children. And I would have given my life to defend them if necessary. Yeah, that's it. Every SRO I've ever met has had that mentality and they're such a unique, special job because not only do you have to have that bravery and that instant call to duty, but you're also there as a role model for young people to show them what law enforcement really can do for the community. And such an amazing job. You had such a great career. You were in the Army. You uh, worked as an SRO, a detective. Now now you're a major champion of Second Amendments in, in a really important position. What is the big lesson to learn from the Tennessee school shooting? I mean, it's very disturbing to see how easily the shooter gets in, right? Shoot the window, you're in the, through the glass doors. What are some of the, the lessons you take away that we can better fortify schools in the future for? Some of the biggest lessons is, and I'm not trying to disparage my brothers and sisters in blue wearing the badge. The officers that responded in Tennessee were heroic. I mean, they showed up as quickly as possible and they took out the trash as quick as possible. But it took them 10 minutes to respond. And that's not a fault on them. That's just a fact of reality. One of the biggest lessons that we could take from this is, one, criminals are predators, and predators prey on the weak. Uh, law enforcement in Tennessee publicly stated that she had a prior target that she wanted to go after, but it was a harder target, so she went after the school since it was a softer target. And the biggest takeaway is if we armed teachers and staff, they could be the first line of defense in protecting our most precious of resources, our children. And I say this as a father, as uh, you know, as a parent, I have a daughter. We entrust our schools to teach our children, to protect our children. And even having one SRO on campus is a great thing, but I know from personal experience that some of the campuses I patrolled were massive. It could take three to five minutes to run from one end of the campus to the other. But if teachers are armed and staff are armed in those precious seconds between responding law enforcement officers, they could save lives. Because, and this is the honest truth, when seconds count, cops are minutes away. Yeah. Yeah, it's not their fault. They just there's there's a proximity issue that you just have to drive to get there, no matter how fast you go. 
In this case, I think we got a little bit of a, a lucky break with the shooter because the shooter starts shooting and then stops for a period of time, which, you know, we probably have to, uh, and then starts again as the cops are arriving, according to the official timeline. But if that full time had been used to continue shooting, the victims would be so much larger in number. And that's where having someone on scene, the SRO and an armed teacher would be the first responder, really. They'd be there in seconds, not minutes. Ohio last year, right, enacted a law that allows teachers to uh, get 24 hours of training on how to carry a gun safely in the schools and then you can carry it. Uh, what have you seen and how has that law been received and how has it been implemented in Ohio? Because that's one of the good testing grounds for this concept. From what I've heard in Ohio that it's been that, you know, it's going through its paces and so far there really hasn't been any negative criticism. Florida has tried to adopt a similar policy with, uh, they call it the Guardian program, but here in Florida, it's a little bit more convoluted. Uh, teachers have to go through over 100 hours of firearms training. Basically, they have to be put through the firearms qualification portion of the police academy. And even then, it's not up to the teacher. It's up to the school district. So the school district could basically say, nope, we're opting out of this. We're not going to let our teachers be armed, which I think is a great disservice to the public because if you have teachers wanting to step up and take the training, and protect the kids that they're entrusted with, why should they be denied by some administrator who's way above them in pay grade that doesn't sit in the classroom, that doesn't deal with the true dangers that, you know, they're they're in a, basically in a corporate headquarters somewhere. Yeah, yeah, right. They're not on the front lines of these sort of split-second moments where time matters. Texas, I think, has for quite some time allowed teachers to do it. Obviously, it's, it's uh, school district by school district. Where else are you seeing movement on this issue? Ohio was a big one. Texas, of course, we know about. I think there's about half the states it's not illegal to carry a firearm as a teacher, but it isn't widely practiced. Where do you think the next big opportunity is for this sort of movement? I think um, a number of the conservative-leaning states are going to be adopting policies allowing teachers to be armed. And, uh, you know, we could be looking at states possibly even Tennessee. I mean, Tennessee is a fairly conservative state, and sadly, this tragedy, I think, will be the impetus to start this. But there's also, you have Utah, you have Arizona, you have um, um, Montana and Wyoming. I mean, there's a number of states that have that are looking to adopt these policies. Again, other states that already have them, like Florida, they could be refined, they could be streamlined, they could be made far more easier for teachers to be able to access uh, this training and these opportunities to be able to protect the kids they're entrusted with. So I think that's the big thing is that there needs to be a push to streamline it and remove the school districts from having a say in it because a lot of the school district leadership is leftist. I mean, just looking at Miami-Dade County, one of the largest school districts in the country, yes, they have their own police department. I, I know a number of officers that work for Miami-Dade School PD. Again, great guys. You know, they're great guys and gals. They're entrusted to do what they're entrusted to do, and they take their job serious. But they are literally a patrolling unit. They go from school to school to school. And Miami-Dade does not in any way want the idea of their teachers being armed, but Miami-Dade would be fantastic if their teachers were armed because even though they have their own school PD, they can't be everywhere at once. This would be a cost saving to both the general public as a taxpayer and would also be beneficial to the agency, to the school PD, because 
they could put the teachers through their own training program. They could put them in, you know, in-house training. I mean, we do it on a federal level for pilots. You have the federal flight deck officer training program where pilots go through um, the federal air marshal training program and they're, they're issued a pistol. Why not do the same for our teachers? Yeah, yeah there's uh, clearly clearly a model that would work, right? And, and in the places it's been implemented, it seems to be working right now. And yet it doesn't seem to be at the top of the surveys priorities of legislatures. Now, I want to ask this because yesterday, Joe Biden returned back to his favorite line, which is, well, we got to We got to have gun control, gun control, gun control, get rid of assault weapons. He goes through all the, the same lines we've heard really for 40 or 50 years. But many of the shootings, the mass shootings that have occurred in the last couple of years, the one in Buffalo, the one in California, many other ones, they occur in states where there's already the, the literally tougher gun control than what Joe Biden's even proposing. And it didn't stop a single one of those shootings. When does that sink in? When do we people realize that no matter how good it sounds politically, it actually doesn't solve the problem one bit? Politically, it's never going to sink in because they're, this is their hill to die on. This is what they're pushing. And they're pushing it because they want to disarm us. If we're disarmed, that means we are reliant on the services they provide. It, it's no different than feudalism in medieval Europe. You know, the, the king held power because the serfs under him were defenseless to the roving horde of bandits and, and, and invaders. And when the, the bandits and the invaders would show up, the king would open the door to his, to his uh, castle and the serfs would come in and they would be protected by the knights. Well, there was, you had to pay for that. And how'd you pay for it? It was serfdom. It was serving, it was farming their fields and paying their taxes. And they want to do that today in the 21st century version of it. They want to disarm us. So we are completely reliant on government. And the Supreme Court has openly stated in multiple rulings, but the most important one is Warren v. D.C. Police have the duty to protect society as a whole, not the individual. Meaning, if they show up late because they were dispatched and given the wrong address, if they showed up and they couldn't determine that a crime was occurring, whatever the reason, guess what? Law enforcement isn't held responsible for that. Ultimately, our safety lies on our own self, or our, is our own self-responsibility. We have the duty to protect ourselves, our family, and our loved ones. It's such a remarkable moment to see the difference between the two approaches. The one approach tries to empower individuals to take control of their own safety and help others if called to that moment of duty. And the other side wants to make it impossible and leave you for the leave for the state to come in, which is just not possible many times to be there in time to, to stop uh, much of the bloodshed and tragedy that occurs in the first few minutes of of a shooting. Uh, yesterday, I think the president said the shooter had two AK-47s. I don't see that in any of the police reporting. It doesn't look like she had two AK-47s. Any concern that the president doesn't even have all the facts right in this particular shooting? The president never has the facts right, and he doesn't care. He is literally dancing on the bodies of the victims even before they've reached room temperature. The moment this happened, he jumped out on it and basically was, I'm going to push gun control. And all at the same time, he was joking about ice cream. I mean, the, the president has been completely incredulous and insulting to the victims of shootings of criminal acts. Let me rephrase that. Not of shootings, of violent criminals acting as criminals. Because last I checked, it's been illegal to commit murder since Hammurabi wrote it down. 
And Moses came down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments. And yet criminals are still criminals because they wantingly and openly break the law. The only thing gun control laws do is they stop the law abiding from being able to defend themselves. And you brought up a great point with California. Joe Biden, you know, a couple of weeks back was in Monterey, California, uh, a suburb of Los Angeles County, and he was pushing for gun control. And the gun control he was pushing, California has it on the state level. They have universal background checks. They have mandatory waiting periods. They have an assault weapons ban. They have a magazine capacity ban. You have to get training and a certificate to simply purchase a firearm. They have all of that. And has any of that stopped criminals from being criminals? No. Yeah, now that's the key thing. The, the, the best answer to this, and it's just a factual answer, which is in the places where the model that Joe Biden and the Democrats are watching want, it hasn't worked. They have as many mass shootings as any other state, and it suggests that there's a much more systemic problem and a much more systemic way to address this. It seems like the mental illness part, and when you talk to people on the front lines who did the profiling afterwards on a shooter, mental illness. And again, we, we see this today, the police telling us that the shooter in Tennessee, that she was undergoing some emotional disturbance treatment. Mental illness is probably the only common thing that you see in the vast majority of these mass killings. And yet that seems to be such an uncomfortable topic for us to have a conversation in the country, even though it's the most common thing you see. In fact, even in mass killings where a gun's not used, it turns out that the killer almost always has some sort of emotional or mental disturbance. How do we get the American people to focus on that after the Virginia Tech shooting? What's that? 16 years ago. This was one of the findings of the Blue Ribbon panel, and yet nothing ever happened. It seems like that's the stepchild in the room that no one wants to talk about. Uh, it, it very much is. We have a mental health crisis. There is a social stigma on discussing mental health treatment, on funding mental health treatment. And the worst thing is you have leftists, you have Democrats literally championing champion and supporting people having mental health issues and basically saying, oh, it's fine. They could be out in society. Well, here's the honest truth. If an individual is a danger to themselves or others, they shouldn't be in society. They shouldn't be walking amongst us without having the treatment and without being reviewed. And again, you know, they, they talk about, oh, red flag laws. We'll take the guns away from, from the crazy people. Uh, crazy people don't need a firearm to act crazy and hurt others. They could use a car. They could use a machete. I mean, one of the worst school tragedies in American history involved a gallon of gasoline, a book of matches, and a padlock, for God's sakes. The guy literally blocked all the, building, all the exits up in Michigan and set the school on fire. But there is a serious issue with mental illness, and you have the same people pushing gun control are championing those that have mental illness and saying, oh, they could be free in society. Look, this is the honest truth. We need to have a serious discussion as Americans on mental illness and mental health treatment, and, it, and we need to remove the social stigma of, one, people getting treatment, and two, we need to stop basically gentrifying the idea that having mental health issues is okay. Um, mental health is a health issue, no more, no less. If an individual has a mental health crisis, they should seek treatment, they sh and they should be applauded for seeking that treatment. They shouldn't have their rights restricted for life because they had treatment. Look, how many, how many law enforcement officers and how many firefighters and EMT professionals and, and military people have PTSD? They do. It's not a full-time thing in their entire life. They have it. They overcome it. 
they receive treatment, they live fully functional lives. They shouldn't have their rights fully restricted for their entire life because of that. But we should have the ability to where these individuals, whatever it is, whatever they're suffering from, whether it's a, a temporary issue or a full-time issue, they should be able to get treatment. And, and the biggest thing is because of how society is pushing it, where they're both acknowledging and congratulating people for having mental health issues and saying, oh, it's normal, it's fine. And at the same time, they're socially stigmatizing people getting treatment. Anyone that wants to better themselves is basically being driven underground and ostracized for that. Yeah, it's such a remarkable dynamic that we haven't been able to have the sort of national conversation that destigmatizes it and gets people out. When people have cancer, we go to bat for them. We get them help. When people develop a traumatic brain injury, we use our best resource. But mental health has been just constantly kicked down the road. We're just too afraid to have that conversation. And it's really at the root of so many of these tragedies that we unfortunately have to talk about from time to time. When you look out over the next couple of days, Florida Senate's got some big action activity going on. What do you expect to happen there? Well, right now, the Florida Senate is scheduled to uh, go into session at 3 o'clock or 3.30 today, and uh, the House just passed uh, the permitless concealed-only carry bill. The Senate is going to bring it up for its second reading and debate, and uh, this is what's interesting. The Democrats actually played a little bit of a political chess in the House, and they're going to do it in the Senate. They introduced an amendment that repeals the gun-free zone in the state capitol, and uh, their debate was pretty genius. They basically told the Republicans, look, you guys claim guns make us safer, right? Let's get rid of the gun-free zone here in, in the Senate, in the House chambers. And the Republicans strangely voted it down. And that was interesting because the Democrats, of course, they don't, they don't want to expand uh, Second Amendment rights and restore Second Amendment rights to the people. But they did it in a way... They did it in a way to call out the hypocrisy of a number of the rhinos in the legislature and make them look bad. And they're going to do the same thing in the Senate today, I think, because they filed the same exact amendment on the Senate side. But the, this is the, the interesting thing in Florida. We're the only Republican state in the country that has an outright ban on open carry. And uh, we're the only, state in the, the only Republican state that has a uh, mandatory waiting period and a... Uh, uh, under 21 purchase ban. And this was all done by Republican lawmakers. Now, the governor has been championing uh, Second Amendment rights and has been fighting against the rhino establishment within our legislature. And it's an uphill battle. And so far, he's been able to claw from them a permitless concealed carry bill. It's not full constitutional carry, but it's a step in the right direction. You know, we fully thank Governor DeSantis for this. But the fight in Florida isn't over, and it's, it's the same thing in other states. Um, North Carolina, they just, re they just overrode uh, their, the governor's veto there to repeal their pistol per uh, uh, permit, uh, pistol purchase permitting scheme, which was a holdover from Jim Crow. And, you know, it's, and I say this to your listeners and your viewers specifically, just because someone has an R next to their name as a politician, doesn't automatically make them pro-gun. You guys need to realize that. Florida, for instance, Florida had a Republican supermajority in 2018 with a Republican governor, and we got gun control. But DeSantis, again, is fighting the hard fight to overturn this, and there's a lot of moving and shaking behind the scenes between the governor and the legislature, and basically the governor is really trying hard against 
legislative leadership. And one of the biggest roadblocks to really expanding gun rights in Florida is Senate President Kathleen Casademo. Back in 2018, she openly stated that uh, if it, Florida would have had an assault weapons ban passed after Parkland, if it wasn't for those gun owners in the panhandle. Um, last year, she said she was against open carry and uh, permitless concealed carry. And uh, right now, the Florida Sheriff's Association is providing her cover. They're saying that, well, we're against this. So if we're against it, you could be against it. And she literally said it. Well, if the sheriffs are against open carry, by God, I'm against it, too. Yeah, that's going to be an interesting dynamic. Any other states that you're keeping a close eye on? Tennessee was going to have some uh, historic gun legislation come forward. I think this week, one of them being allowing permitless carry available to people 18 and up uh, once they become an adult. That's been put on hold for a few days, obviously, because of the tragedy. Any other states that you guys at Gun Owners of America have your eyes on right now for interesting legislation? Well, right now, in terms of legislation, there's a number of states in play, but we're also looking at things from the judicial side. we are fighting um, the erroneous um, restrictions in New York in the court system, you know, how basically New York has turned the entire state into a gun-free zone. We're fighting that. Um, I believe it's currently going either to a three-judge panel or an on banc review. I'm not 100% sure. I think it was a three-judge panel that just had the hearing. And eventually, I think that's going to possibly kick, be kicked up to the U.S. Supreme Court. Um I know in California, we're waiting on pins and needles right now, any day to see what uh, uh, St. Benitez, you know, the the wonderful Second Amendment judge out in California, going to strike down the the assault weapons ban and magazine ban. And I think their handgun roster is also going to be struck down. I mean, there's a lot of things in play across the country right now. And in the end, I would love for everything to move forward perfectly. It's not, but we are still moving forward, and every day is still a victory, even if it's not a full victory. This is a long-term war, and, you know, it's like in every conflict, you have to t- – you, you're not going to win it overnight, but by God, we're winning it. Yeah, the courts have been emphatic that the Second Amendment right is an absolute right, and it was intended to be so by our founding fathers and – that can't be erased by political whim. And I think the courts continue to roll ruling after ruling after ruling, reaffirming that, which I think the American people now are well aware of. It's well established. And now the question is, if that's not going to be the solution, then how about we come up with something that really does work? And I think that's what people are crying for their political leaders to do. Real quickly before we go, Louise, what's the best way for people to stay in touch with all the great work that Gun Owners America are doing right now? Real simple. Just go to gunowners.org. And if people want to join, it's just 25 bucks a year. It's gunowners.org slash join. And I can tell you this, as a father and a, and a husband, I spend more than $25 going to Burger King and just drive through to pick up dinner for all three of us. <laughs> of course. So, so 25 bucks a year goes a long way to GOA. Every penny that we get from our members, we spend on the fight. Look, I don't have fancy suits. I don't fly around in a, in a private jet. I drive I drive from Pensacola to Key West and everywhere in between in my own personal pickup truck and I wear jeans and a polo shirt and we do it that way for a reason. <laughs> that's the way Americans like it. They want people to be real and to get real. It's, that's a great opportunity here. Well, Louise, it's such an honor to have you on. Always enjoy talking to you. Enjoy your career and the great work you did as a police officer, as, as an Army veteran before you, you joined Gun Owners of America. We're so lucky to have you the show. And I know with all the court cases and legislative battles ahead, we're going to need to get you on real soon again. Again, thanks for what you do, and thanks for being a a shining beacon of liberty in these dark and troubled times. Keep up the good work, brother, because 
Our national motto says it best, E Pluribus Unum, out of many, one. Together, we make this country great. That's so true. Our founding fathers had it right from the beginning, and it's our generation's turn to make sure we carry on that legacy. Such a great conversation, Louise. We'll be talking to you real soon. Have a good one. Thank you, my friend. All right, folks, we'll take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back after these messages. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. All right, folks, welcome back for the commercial break. So thankful for Ashley Rinsberg and the time he spent, Louise Valdez for the time he spent. Two big conversations about two big issues in our society today. In fact, the first two freedoms that the Bill of Rights, our founding fathers, gave us. The First Amendment, free speech, that's involved in the media. Second Amendment, the right to bear arms, involved in all the stuff we just talked about with Luis Valdez. So grateful you can join this conversation. A lot of meat there today. I'm very excited. Now, before we go off into the evening, I'd just like to take a quick moment and welcome back one of my favorite sponsors, Mancrates. Mancrates.com makes shopping for the most important man in your life easy. And that's important. You know, it's hard to keep coming up with creative gifts for the guy in your life, your dad, your grandfather, your husband, your significant other. And what I love about Mancrates is they not only have some of the most unique gifts, they wrap them in a way a guy would love to get it. How about a crate that you got to open up with a crowbar? That's actually the wrapping paper for some of the great gifts at mancrates.com. So there are some of my favorites. My favorite one is what they call the Grill Master Crate. All right, so at mancrates.com, you get the Grill Master Crate. Why? It's springtime. We're starting to get warm weather. You're going down the back deck or the back patio, firing up the grill, right? Well, the Grill Master Crate includes a brass knuckle meat tenderizer, cast iron smoker box, so much more. And you get an unforgettable experience when you get the gift, too, because you're going to have a sealed crate. You're going to use a crowbar. You're going to open it up. That is so darn cool. There's also, for those who have a little taste for an Irish drink, a personalized decanter matching tumblers, ice sphere molds as part of the whiskey appreciation crate. That's another great gift. Many other ones just like that. Creative, fresh, exciting for the man in your life. So go check it out today, mancrates.com. And we've got a very special relationship, a great partnership with Mancrates. If you go and you use the code RADIO15, R-A-D-I-O-15, RADIO15 at mancrates.com, you're going to get 15% of that offer. So get ahead, get an early Father's Day gift set now. Hey, it's only a couple months away. Go do it now. Maybe there's a birthday coming up, an anniversary coming up for the man in your life. Go to mancrates.com, use RADIO15, and all the John Solomon reports Customers and all the Just the News fans, you'll be able to get 15% off a gift you won't forget, nor will the man in your life forget. So go check that out. We're so grateful for Mancrates 
sponsorship of this program, our Just the News brand, our Just the News reporting. All right, folks, with that, it's time to go into the evening. God bless you. God bless this extraordinary country, the United States, as he always has. You've been listening to John Solomon Reports, the podcast from Just the News. Folks, financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year, and then the inflation data came out higher than expected again, just like we've been predicting. Friends, this isn't going away anytime soon. It can't. The U.S. is $34 plus trillion in the hole, and yet we keep printing money, which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher, whether it's at the grocery cart or at the gas store. So, You can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation and Birch Gold makes it easy to own. They will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. All you got to do to get started, text JUSTNEWS to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Then talk to a precious metal specialist on how to protect your savings from persistent inflation. The way to do it with gold. All you got to do to get started on that journey with my good friends who I trust more than anyone at Birch Gold Group, text JUSTNEWS to 989898 right now.